0: Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World weekly podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we're going to learn why there are physical limits on how big a wind farm can be. And we'll also chat about how particles from outer space can affect self-driving cars. And we'll discover why physicists believe that twisted graphene can become a rare and potentially useful type of superconductor. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is an official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to expand your understanding of electrochemical research? ECS's popular short course program begins in September with their core course titled Fundamentals of Electrochemistry, Basic Theory, and Kinetic Methods. This course covers basic theory and application of electrochemical science. It's designed for people who want to gain a better understanding of electrochemical methods and research. ECS also offers four short courses during their fall meeting in October. Courses are only available virtually. Students receive significant short course registration discounts. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash education and click short course to learn more. Cosmic rays are high-energy particles from space that constantly bombard Earth. When they collide with atoms in the atmosphere, they can create huge showers of secondary particles, such as muons and neutrons, some of which will reach the ground. A feature article in the July issue of Physics World looks at how these showers can sometimes cause serious problems in computer circuits. And I'm joined by Physics World's Features Editor, Tushna Commissariat, to talk about the threats posed to modern technology by these extraterrestrial visitors. Hi, Tushna. Hi, Hamish. So this article is written by the science writer Rachel Brazil, and she she begins with an anecdote about an impossible glitch that occurred when someone was playing the video game Super Mario 64. What exactly happened there, And and what does that have to do with Cosmic Rays? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well so as you said someone a, a gamer was playing uh, super mario 64 which is a classic mario game you know run around on a little obstacle course and jump over all the mushrooms and the like uh, and they were luckily enough streaming this on the vid- the gaming platform twitch so there's a recording of them playing this um and what happens is basically mario in this game makes this leap it, he jumps up something like four or five levels in fact he pings to the ceiling of the room that he is in and by doing this it it gave the the player this amazing advantage but there was no way within the bounds of the game to actually do this there was no shortcut there was no trick there was no physical way um them to actually do this and and you know usually in 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 gaming when someone manages to do a cool trick like that you know you should be able to recreate it someone else should be able to say oh all right they jumped off of this bit and did that but so they tried um in fact it was so impressive that other streamers um, there was another streamer who a gamer a prominent gamer who noticed it and offered a reward of $1000 to anyone who could replicate the same move yeah this was a big and, deal
0: wasn't it in the yeah, gaming
1: community. yeah 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 cuz they were like what was that how did how did mario do that leap you know and for 8 years for 8 years they kept trying Uh, someone kept trying to see if they could emulate this leap. Uh, And in the end, the person, um, the gamer who in fact offered the reward figured out themselves that what was most likely happened was that there was a bit flip that happened, you know, one, one specific bit in the bite that Said how high um, Mario could jump in the game at that time got flipped to something that was not a part of the spec, and and most likely the source of that flipping, the reason why that bit flipped, was an ionizing particle from outer space, also known as a um, very fast neutron. Wow. So-
0: <laughs> wow that's yeah that, 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 that's really interesting, and oh, of course you know we could we could laugh at this and say you know that that's not really consequential and in fact it was a bit of fun for the for the gaming community but but there's also some some pretty serious and concerning events that have occurred um, I think the the abrupt descent of an Australian airliner that resulted in twelve serious Injuries And also irregularity in a voting machine that gave, gave a candidate thousands of unearned votes. The, those two events are thought to be to particles from space. So, the, you know, the, the, this can happen, seems to be a common thing or, or something that can happen in, in many systems.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So there's this, you know, so these are referred to as single event upsets or SEUs. And it basically happens in any electronic system, where a bit flips and does something unexpected. And we don't really... We don't really know why that bit flipped. It wasn't part of the setup. It wasn't meant to do that. And both those examples you gave, as you mentioned, those had very serious consequences, especially the plane. I mean, it was, it was lucky that, you know, because it was at a height of 11,300 meters, you could imagine it would have been absolutely catastrophic if, you know, it, it had been worse than the plane just losing some height in that case you know and 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 the voting <laughs> could have been voting fraud in a way but again so those are very real world um issues and, and and basically it what what what's happening is that any device that has a transistor in it that has some kind of semiconductor material can unfortunately interact with these fast neutrons that come as a result of cosmic ray bursts and um the the w- what happens is that you know that they're, they're impinging on earth all the time. uh, And there's loads of them coming through, but they don't always interact with something. But when they do, um, you know, the energy, um, it, it deposits some energy and it flips a bit. And as we know now, transistors are getting smaller and smaller. So the energy you need to actually flip a bit is going lower and lower. So it's easier and easier to do this. And also, as, as the, the energy gets smaller, but our overall surface area of computers is increasing, especially when you have, um, supercomputers and, and these, this, you know, this year we're hoping to see the first X scale computers. So those are ones that can do, um, about 10 to the power 18 operations per second. So you can imagine that those computers are, again, the size of a room or a couple of rooms. So you have a lot of area, a lot of transistors, and you need less energy to flip these bits. So the chances of corrupting the data is just going up and up. So it's a significant issue and and something that um, sort of uh, a lot of different um, scientists are worrying about
0: and and supercomputers that's the focus of Rachel's article and i would imagine that if you're doing this huge calculation and you're very unlucky and you have a bit flip right near the beginning it could have a huge <laughs> implication on your result couldn't it your result could go just completely bonkers from you know one one error early on couldn't it
1: absolutely absolutely and so there's so many complications involved in there because the first thing is that it could just crash your computer and could keep crashing it so you um there, there's a great story that Rachel tells in the feature about the first supercomputer that they had at Los Alamos the, the Cray 1 and initially when they built it um, you know it was built at an altitude of about 2300 meters above sea level Big which is <laughs> even closer <laughs> to cosmic rays and and they didn't have have error correcting codes and in fact it was crashing so often that it, it was almost like it I think it would run just for a little <laughs> couple of hours and then it would crash um, so they realized that they needed to have some error correcting codes and they started detecting loads of these errors and um, then even in, even as recently as 2002 when Los Alamos had their latest you know second, second fastest supercomputer in the world it would only run for about an hour and then it would crash because of errors you know and then they had to add these massive really thick metal panels all around the server room and then you know to to blank out radiation in general because that in general affects uh computing uh, and then it would run for about 6 hours so you can you can see that it has a rather significant impact and it's not something that we can just you know um ignore and additionally so these are these are the very obvious effects that we can see um as uh rachel writes later on in the feature there's lots of of these errors that could be coming in that are silent errors that we don't even know are affecting the supercomputers or and and so that's where they sneak in and really affect your output and you don't you wouldn't even know it you wouldn't even know that these these things are happening, you know, um, it's 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 something that, yeah, really, as computing becomes, as, as we sort of move ahead with more and more computing power and process, uh, we're going to have to really be looking out for
0: those cosmic rays. Well, one thing that, that I, I thought was interesting about Rachel's article, and something that I didn't know, it seems counterintuitive, that it's neutrons um, that seem to be the problem, um, not Muons, or I suppose maybe muons, are also a problem. But it is a bit surprising that neutrons—that you know—they don't have uh, an electrical charge. Uh, so you wouldn't thought you would think that they would just go straight through the computer without causing any trouble. But uh, apparently, they, they are a problem. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. what are scientists doing to understand how neutrons interact with computer circuits?
1: Well, that's, that's, I mean, yeah, that that is exactly what they're doing. They're trying to understand what happens. And, and so as you mentioned, so there's millions of these neutrons that do strike us every second, but it's only very occasionally that they do flip a bit. So the first thing that they're trying to do is really understand how often does it happen? What's the scale of this issue uh, when it interacts with any kind of, semiconductor material and then does it always flip a bit does it not you know can can you absorb up that energy somehow so those are some of the things that they're looking at and interestingly enough um, not so 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 these neutrons that come from cosmic rays are what they call fast neutrons and they have this bit of pack of energy but then there's also another secondary complication in terms of thermal neutrons now these are nine orders of magnitude less energy than the ones directly coming from cosmic rays um but they have a very specific issue when they collide with boron 10 now you might know this quite well hamish the boron 10 is very popular in semiconductor chips and so you have lots of semiconductor chips and and so when that when a boron 10 nucleus uh, absorbs one of these thermal neutrons it decays to lithium and it, it emits an alpha particle so you can imagine that's definitely not something we we want either and so um some of the physicists um that uh rachel talks in the future they specifically looked at commercial devices um that uh are already used and 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 that have this Boron 10, and they found that it definitely has a significant impact. They looked at some possibilities like using Boron 11, but that would make it way too expensive. And so production wise, that wouldn't make sense. So, um, and then they also noticed that uh, the, the, the thermal neutrons are very sensitive to what surrounds the device? So, if you have anything that contains hydrogen, so even something like water, then, um, or something like concrete, and then they slow down these fast neutrons. So, you think, oh, well, that's great. So, you build a concrete shield, but then you're turning the fast neutrons to these thermal neutrons.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And then, so, so then you have to think about the thermal neutrons. And what was amazing to me was that they found that literally, um, the when they were testing these commercial devices they found that literally the weather affected thermal neutron producer, uh, production and they found that the levels doubled on rainy days
0: oh right because the, the water in the air was thermalizing indeed. the neutrons
1: exactly exactly so there's a lot going on in this sort of un slightly you know it was news to me uh when when we first sort of came across this i think a year or so ago so it seems quite interesting that we've We've been experiencing this for all these years and ha- haven't had any more ca- catastrophic outcomes
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that is interesting about boron because you know I, I suppose if you know anybody who's watched Chernobyl the uh, the television mm. series knows that boron is used in nuclear reactors, especially because it's such a good absorber of neutrons exactly. so uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> not, yeah exactly not, yeah i I yeah that definitely makes sense um. Another thing that uh, I suppose is sort of an ominous thing that that Rachel mentions uh in her article is sort of future problems and and the one that she highlights is a is a cosmic ray glitch in the computer running a self-driving car and you know mm-hmm. that sounds uh that sounds horrendous you know that could be potentially lethal um so so what can you know people developing systems for uh, self-driving cars do to, to avoid that problem or minimize the problem?
1: Yeah, uh, you, you're absolutely right that that's the sort of most real world scary um, problem that we mention. And so specifically, the system that gets affected or that um, we know right now, at least, that has a significant impact are... Uh, um, the graphics processing units, the GPUs, um, that are being used in high performance computing. Now, GPUs were previously, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you'd only really see them, um, in, in things like gaming or, or, you know, graphic designing and things like that, because they're basically used for really, well, making really excellent graphics, right? Um, but these commercial GPUs that we have and that have been sort of refined over the years are now being used in things like self-driving cars because self-driving cars have a lot of um you know they they um they have systems where they need to you know See a pedestrian and the way they learn that is using videos that are built in. So, so GPUs are actually being used in, in self, many self driving cars already. There's a couple of big companies. Um, there's NVIDIA and AMD that sort of are the, the key manufacturers of GPUs and they're being used in a number of driverless cars already. That's, that's where the issue really comes in. And so what the scientists have been doing is that they've Taken these commercially available GPUs, uh, and they've been testing them in. Um, so there is a um, beam line, the, the chipper, I guess is how you would say it, uh, chipper beam line. So it's an it's a neutron, it's, it's an atmospheric neutron beam line at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory here in the UK. And what they do there is that they try and create atmospheric like fast neutrons and um bombard them onto anything that you want to test so it's it's basically a beamline that tests the effects of irradiation on all kinds of microelectronics and they specifically can create these single event upsets uh to see what happens so so that's what the scientists have been doing and what they've been doing is that of course they uh, in in the experimental setting they bombard these GPUs with much more than the kind of radiation that they would experience to test, what they what they found was that there are that 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 they did see many of these many of these errors, and they found something like um, the, the conclusion was that an average GPU in in real life would experience one error every three three and a half years, 3.2 years, something like that. Now, that doesn't seem that bad. You're like, okay, one bit flip every, every three and a half years. But then you have to scale it up in terms of what if in 10 years, everyone has a self-driving car or that's the majority of cars, right? Um, and so with that kind of case, you have something like 300 million cars in the EU. At any given point of time, there'd be about, say, 4%. On the road, so that would give you a number of about three hundred and eighty errors per hour. All
0: oh, right, so that
1: suddenly <laughs> makes it really quite scary, and that's just in the EU. We're not even looking yeah, outside. Yeah. So
0: suddenly crossing the road uh, maybe becomes a exactly. bit more dangerous. Yeah,
1: exactly, Gosh. exactly. Yeah, so so it's it's again, it's not something that we can just ignore or be like, oh well, it's one of those. It's like being hit by lightning. It's not quite right.
0: <laughs> <like> yeah. Being... <laughs> yeah, And You know, s- s- silicon devices are. Uh, you know, I suppose they are fragile, but they're much more robust than the sort of things that are used in quantum computers. In fact, you know, a big problem with quantum computers is is minimizing the the interaction with with the environment. And I, I would imagine that that these particles from outer space could be a big problem for quantum computers. Is that something that people are looking into?
1: absolutely yeah it's a very significant problem um you know as as i'm sure that you are well aware and many of our our listeners will be aware too that um the name of the game in quantum computing is coherence you want all your qubits to be coherent um that they're all in the same quantum state and the main thing that all of the different companies working towards quantum computing right now are moving towards is getting coherence for as long as you can now right now they have it at around, I think, 200 microseconds has been the best, you know, sort of time that we've had for proper coherence. But obviously, everyone's trying to up that number because, well, you need to be able to run a program for longer than 200 microseconds, right? Uh, And so that's where significantly the issues would come out. So basically, what, what these fast neutrons would do was immediately just you know knock out the coherence and and your system would just decohere and it might be a little bit like that for a supercomputer you know before they had error correction built in that would just keep falling over um so what what the researchers did in this case is that um they they just wanted to see the impact of radiation on a qubit system. So what happened? So what they did was they used this radioactive copper foil, um, that produces copper 64 and that it has a half life of about 12 hours. And they placed that foil in a helium dilution refrigerator along with some superconducting qubits. And basically when they turned the apparatus on, it literally just wouldn't work. Nothing would work and these were fully functioning qubits before. Uh, and then they just leave them and then after a few days they basically would start working and you'd get coherence again and that was because the radioactivity was dropping down. Oh at right, yeah, uh, yeah.
0: So just as expected. And they,
1: exactly. And they did this for many weeks. They'd cycled, they, you know, and, and over and over the qubit would slowly get back to this kind of baseline and then to really test it they built this two ton um brick wall that they could raise and lower so they could raise it to shield the qubits every something like 10 minutes and then they could literally see the cycling in the stability so i think from that they realized that you know without some significant intervention um between cosmic radiation and just ambient radiation you know uh, the limit for qubit coherence would be something like 4 milliseconds it, assuming that everything else is going perfectly, now right now, obviously we're nowhere near four milliseconds for coherence. But you know, hopefully in the next couple of years, that's what we're moving towards. So, so, so you know, the likes of Google and IBM are going to have to significantly start thinking about this. And as Rachel writes in the future, that Google is already thinking about it. So they've got some ideas of maybe sitting their qubits on these kind of aluminium island and then you have a silicone substrate. And so the idea would be that maybe the substrate would absorb up the energy and the photons would be exchanged between the qubit and the substrate. And then, you know, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be coherent. So hopefully the energy would be absorbed. Um, and are also looking at extra, you know, building in loads of extra qubits, um, not all of which would be used to actually process data but instead, would be error correcting qubits. So um, they are thinking about it already, uh, which is which is a good thing because otherwise, it's you know, just not going to work, are they?
0: <laughs> no, no. Well, that's that's really interesting, Tushna. Um, You can find Rachel's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline: Cosmic Challenge: Protecting Supercomputers from an Extraterrestrial Threat.
1: So, Hamish, I noticed that we've had yet another breakthrough in twistronics. I noticed an interesting article on the website.
0: Yeah, that's right. Loyal readers will know that in 2018, physicists discovered that if you stack one sheet of graphene on another and then twist it by a small angle, the resulting material can have some very interesting properties. Indeed, at a, at a magic angle of about one degree, the bilayer becomes a superconductor, and that came as a big surprise.
1: But I couldn't help noticing that this latest work was about a trilayer, a twisted trilayer.
0: Yeah, that's right. This is this is like a, a sandwich of graphene, where the top and the bottom layers are aligned with each other, but the middle layer is twisted by about 1.5 degrees. And uh, that's the magic angle in this case. Earlier this year, Pablo Harillo Herrero at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and colleagues they found that this material is also a superconductor, but their latest research revealed yet another unexpected twist. Ooh, go on. Then what did they find? They found that the twisted trilayer remained a superconductor even when subject to very high magnetic fields. And these are the sort of fields that would destroy superconductivity in normal materials. And what's more, as they cranked up the field, the superconductivity disappeared, as expected, but then it reappeared at a higher field strength, which is a very odd thing to happen. And they say that this is evidence that the twisted bilayer graphene is a rare spin triplet superconductor, and that could make it a very useful material.
1: Oh, wow, making graphene even more useful. Why is that? Well,
0: w- one thing is that superconducting coils are used these days to create high magnetic fields in things such as MRI medical scanners. But the, the, the fields that they can achieve are limited by the fact that superconductivity is destroyed by very high fields. So, you know, the magnet, in a sense, uh, destroys itself. Well, not, not literally, <laughs> but at least um, it stops working uh, at a certain level. And so graphene-based coils could be used to create higher fields, and that would mean better MRI images. But just going back to what we were talking about um, you know, with regards to quantum computers, as you mentioned, some quantum computers use superconducting circuits, and these could benefit um, from being made by a spin triplet material, because they would mm. be more resilient to stray magnetic fields, which, like cosmic rays, can upset. Uh, the delicate quantum calculations. You can find out more about this remarkable discovery in a research update that was written by regular contributor Sam Jarman on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Twisted Tri-Layer Graphene Could Be a Spin Triplet Superconductor. And while you're there, don't forget to look out for Rachel Brazil's fantastic feature. Thanks for being on the podcast, Tishna.
1: My pleasure,
0: Hamish. Turbines that harness the wind to generate electricity are a familiar sight in many places. And in 2020, they generated 6.1% of electricity worldwide. But as more and bigger wind farms are being built, it's becoming clear that the efficiency of an individual turbine can be reduced significantly by the presence of its neighbors. To find out why, I'm joined down the line from California by Enrico Antonini of the Carnegie Institution for Science, Department of Global Ecology, and that's at Stanford University. Now, Enrico, along with his colleague Ken Caldera, has just published a paper that looks at how large an efficient wind farm can be. Hi, Enrico. Welcome to the
2: podcast. Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Now, Enrico, the, the atmosphere is a huge place compared to the size of even the largest wind turbine. And, and if you're standing out in, in, in a gale, the wind can seem like an unlimited source of energy when it blows. So some people might be surprised that too many turbines in a wind farm can reduce its overall efficiency. What are the processes that can lead to this reduction?
2: That's a good question. So the Earth's atmosphere extends up to hundreds of kilometers in altitude and can be divided in different layers. Most important layer for wind energy harvesting is the troposphere, which is the bottom layer that extends up to 10 or 20 kilometers in altitude. And in this layer, most of the energy exchange from the atmosphere to the turbines occur in the first one or two kilometers. And this region is called the planetary boundary layer. And also just to give you a sense of uh, wind turbine dimensions, the tip of modern wind turbines can reach uh, a height between 200 and 300 meters. And so what happens in the planetary boundary layer that affects the wind farm efficiency? So let's first think about uh, an isolated wind turbine. So this turbine extracts uh, about uh, 40 to 50% of the kinetic energy possessed by the mass of air that passes through the turbine. And so right downstream the turbine, there is a region of reduced wind speed. And this region is called the wake. And this reduced wind speed in the wake of a turbine takes uh, a distance of about uh, 10 times the rotor diameter to recover to the upstream conditions. And you can visualize this wake region as a cylinder. It is not really a cylinder, but for the sake of argument, let's let's imagine that. And the base of the cylinder is equal to the rotor-swept area. And uh, inside the cylinder, you have the reduced wind speed. The kinetic energy deficit of the wake Is uh, replenished by the surrounding wind that has not passed through the the turbine. And so this is the wind uh, outside of the cylindrical wake region. But now let's think about the turbines placed close to each other in a wind farm. The turbines uh, placed uh, in the wake of others inevitably extract less energy because they are affected by the upstream turbines. And also, wakes. uh, combine and overlap with each other, uh, creating even more energy losses. And so the more turbines you have in a wind farm, the higher are the chances that a wind turbine operates in less than ideal conditions. And ultimately, the higher are these energy losses. And uh, so when wind farms uh, reach a very large dimensions, what drive the energy replenishment are large-scale atmospheric forces such as uh, the pressure gradient and the apparent Coriolis force. And this is just uh, an overview of the processes that determine uh, wind farm efficiency.
0: In your latest research with Ken Caldera, you used fluid dynamics models to study how wind flows through turbines in a wind farm. What did you find regarding the density and positioning of turbines?
2: Uh, We started from two empirical observations. Uh, the first one is about the power density of wind farms at different scales. So the power density is defined as the mean power generation per unit of land occupied by a wind farm. And observations show that the power density can exceed uh, 10 watt per square meter in small wind farms, whereas it's on the order of 1 watt per square meter for very large wind farms. So you see that there is a difference of an order of magnitude between the two. And the second observation is about the wakes generated by a wind farm as a whole. So previously, I mentioned to you that the wake from an isolated wind turbine can extend up to 10 times the rotor diameter, which uh, if you consider a diameter of 100 meters, that corresponds to a distance of 1 kilometer. However there are observations of uh, wakes from large wind farms that extends up to 30 or 40 kilometers. And again, there is a difference of an order of magnitude between these scales. And so these observations suggest that uh, the special scale of a wind farm affects uh, both uh, its mean generation per unit of land and also the extension of wakes. And so in our latest research, we wanted to characterize these spatial scales to understand how large a wind farm can be before its generation reaches energy replenishment limits, or how far apart the large wind farms must be spaced to avoid inter wind farm interference.
0: And what did you find?
2: So, we hypothesized first that uh, time scales related to the forces at play could give a physical explanation and characterize such a, t- a transition. Because of the large dimensions that uh, wind farms uh, are reaching, we consider the role of uh, large-scale atmospheric physics, uh, such as the Coriolis force uh, and uh, atmospheric pressure gradients, which become important for uh, these large installations. And so the corresponding horizontal scale is obtained by multiplying the time scale by the geostrophic wind speed. And so to test our hypothesis, we performed a set of fluid dynamical simulations of very large wind farms. By changing both the uh, latitude at which they were located and the wind speed uh, uh, that they experienced. And so we showed that uh, consistently with field observations, uh, wind farms smaller than a characteristic length scale result in uh, higher power densities and shorter waves. And on the other hand, increasingly larger wind farms result in studying power densities that uh, asymptotically reach their minimum and wakes that reach their maximum extent. And so we refer to these as mesoscale wind farms, as opposed to the smaller ones, which we refer to as sub-mesoscale wind farms.
0: Although efficiency improvements can be made in, in small wind farms, you found that there was a limit to the efficiency in, in larger wind farms. Well, why is that?
2: As I mentioned previously, as the number and density of turbines in a wind farm increase, so does their likelihood of being affected by an upstream turbine, diminishing the energy generation. So if wind farms are composed of a relatively small number of widely spaced turbines, the likelihood of a turbine being affected by an upstream one is low. And this likelihood can be further mitigated by optimal layout design. For very large wind farms, all but the first row of turbines are mutually affected. And for such conditions, the replenishment of energy and momentum extracted by these uh, large-scale wind farms is limited by uh, horizontal pressure gradient and Coriolis forces. The energy is, in fact, uh, supplied by the pressure gradient force within the planetary boundary layer and transported downward to the turbines. And it does not originate from the overlying free troposphere, which is above the planetary boundary layer. And the interaction of these forces ultimately provides uh, geophysical limits uh, to the power density of uh, large wind farms. And more specifically, we found that the regions with uh, higher horizontal pressure gradients have a higher energy availability, and consequently, higher energy generation per unit surface area. And we also showed that for the same horizontal pressure gradient, the power density is is higher in lower latitudes, suggesting that the uh, replenishment of energy depends also on the degree to which the pressure forces are opposed by the Coriolis force. And these are some of the main implications of the limits uh, to wind power density of large wind farms that we found in our studies.
0: Yeah, you know, that, that last point is, it was something that I found really interesting about your study that it depends how far the wind farm is from the equator. Uh, wh- why is that?
2: So, the reason is that one of the forces that controls both how much this limit is and uh, at what scale it is reached is the apparent Coriolis force. This force depends on the latitude. It is zero at the equator and maximum at the poles. But now let's consider the dynamic behavior of the Coriolis force. So its response time, when there is a sudden change in in boundary condition, is inversely proportional to the Coriolis parameter, which is also a function of the latitude. And so the response time of this force is then faster for higher latitude, and to get then the horizontal length scale at which the energy replenishment limits are hit, we have to multiply this response time by the wind speed. And so, this implies that uh, higher latitude wind farms would uh, undergo this transition at smaller size at a smaller size than would uh, a lower latitude wind farm. And further, this would suggest that, uh, with other things equal, wind farm wakes at the higher latitudes would be replenished with momentum and kinetic energy more rapidly than they would at lower latitudes. And so to summarize, we can say that for a given horizontal pressure gradient, which supplies energy to the turbines, the limits to the replenishment of energy are lower for higher latitudes. And the size at which these limits are reached. Is smaller, farther from the equator. However, we have to say that uh, at uh, higher latitudes, we usually have uh, higher pressure gradients that can sustain stronger winds, and so this provides this provides more energy availability and compensate for the larger Coriolis, Coriolis effect.
0: And how will your research benefit those who are designing wind farms?
2: The- Characterization of such dimensional scales is uh, of crucial importance for the planning of the uh, next generation wind farms. For example, in 2020, wind comprised uh, a 6% share of uh, electricity generated worldwide, as you said uh, initially. And this figure is expected to substantially grow as more renewable energy is uh, is used in the effort to limit the carbon dioxide emissions and consequent increases in global average temperature. And under some energy transition scenarios, wind energy provides more than one third of the global energy needs by 2015. Uh, This indicates that the size of future wind farms may extend uh, far beyond that of current installations. And so our analysis provides uh, a better understanding and a physical explanation of the scalability of wind farms and defines the dimensions under which a wind farm can be considered a submesoscale or above which it can be considered a mesoscale. But so why is this important? Whereas for submesoscale wind farms, the turbines are less likely to be affected by an upstream one and power densities can be greater, for very large wind farms, all turbines are mutually affected resulting in lower power densities. And so, with this understanding, wind farm designers could predict uh, how a prospective wind farm would operate uh, and whether an optimal layout of design would more effectively mitigate uh, energy uh, losses generated by wakes. At sub-mesoscale level, current methodologies that neglect the effect of Coriolis and focus on wake interaction minimization will uh, remain the preferred choice. At the mesoscale level, Choosing the right combination of installed power density and wind farm size will become a matter of optimization to find the best economically viable solution. For mesoscale wind farms, while there exists uh, an upper bound on, on the replenishment of momentum and kinetic energy within the boundary layer, this bound does not indicate uh, what fraction of momentum wind and energy will ultimately reach the wind turbine blades. Optimal turbine layout and operation will still need to be considered even for, the, for very large wind farms, even though their effectiveness may be more limited. And lastly, designers could explore the possibility of designing multiple small wind farms, as opposed to larger one, in the effort to maximize the energy generation over a given area and with a given number of turbines. And as wind energy development grows and suitable location for potential wind farms become more populated, the length how wind farm wakes could be better predicted to understand the potential implication on neighbouring wind farms in terms of energy generation and economic losses.
0: Well, that's, that's really interesting, Enrico, and it, it certainly gives our listeners something to think about the next time they see a, a wind farm off in the distance. You can read more about Enrico and Ken's research in an article by Tim Wogan on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Optimal Size for Wind Farms is Revealed by Computational Study. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Enrico.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Enrico Antonini and Tushna Commissariat for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do listen to the latest Physics World Stories podcast. It's called Deflecting Asteroids and Exploring a Metal World, and it features two scientists who were involved in robotic missions to asteroids. You can find all the Stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favorite podcast app. Physics World